Throughout the month of October, we have been focusing on our history, um, our history as Protestants, the history that we have as a church experienced for the past 500 years, the history of God's grace towards his people. Uh, this is not a sermon series on church history or a sermon series on Martin Luther, but as we recognize the grace of God to his people, we recognize, we recognize that God works in history. And we praise him for that because we are part of this history. And if God has worked through his people, in his people, in the past, he will do it again today. So we rejoice in that. Our sermon text for today is Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is at the heart of human motivation? In other words, what drives us to do what we do in life? Positively, we're often driven by success by the greater good, by common goals. Negatively, we're driven by pride, selfishness, hatred. Darwinists would say that we're driven by a survival instinct. Freud would say that we are driven by our sexual desires. But, friendly, but, but friends, in reality, there are only two motivating factors in the life of every human. Either we are motivated by sin, the original sin we've inherited from Adam that very much lives in the hearts of humanity today, or we're motivated by grace, the grace of God. There are only two options. During the month of October, we're taking some time to remember the Protestant Reformation. This great movement that began in the 16th century as a desire to bring the Catholic Church to a place of faithfulness was born in the hearts of faithful men and women. As we saw last week, one of the most central words that came out of the Reformation was the word sola. Sola simply means only or alone. The Catholic Church was happy to affirm the authority of Scripture, the necessity of grace, the importance of faith, the centrality of Christ, and the glory of God. But the Reformers fought and died to add this simple four letters. Sola to them. 
alone. The five solos of the Reformation are the five pillar doctrines the Reformers affirm, and along with them, what my intent week after week is to show you that along with them, we affirm them too. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone is our source of authority. It is what guides our faith and what guides our practices. Sola gratia, grace alone. Grace alone empowers us to forsake sin and follow God. Sola fide, faith alone is our source of righteousness, not works. Solus Christus, Christ alone saves. Christ alone is the head of the church. Soli Deo Gloria, the glory of God alone. At the heart of the Reformation, there was a return to a biblical model of worship, where God informs us not only whom we worship, but how we ought to worship Him. As Protestants, we affirm that Scripture alone teaches us that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are saved, and all this amounts to the glory of God alone. And as we turn this week from Scripture alone to grace alone, we're reminded that for centuries the Catholic Church had taught that sin run deeply in the heart of men, but not that deeply. If men could just do a few works, a few religious acts, primarily baptism or the sprinkling of babies and other sacraments, men would be free from their sinful nature, from their sinful depravity. Original sin would be done away with, and by simply doing works, men would be able to turn in themselves to God. Listen to what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says today still. Original sin is a deprivation of original holiness and justice. But human nature has not been totally corrupted. Baptism, by imparting the life of Christ's grace, erases original sin, and turns a man back towards God. This is the teaching of the Catholic Church today. It was the teaching of the Catholic Church 500 years ago. But that's not what the Bible says, is it? In Ephesians 2, so clear, we are born dead in our trespasses and our sins. Ephesians 2 says, no, the corruption is total. It's complete. But Ephesians 2 also tells us, but God makes us alive in Christ. Not by baptism, not by sacraments, but by grace we have been saved. Grace is what God gives sinners in order to transfer us spiritually from death to life, not works. Not that which the church tells you you must do, but by sheer love 
God gives grace. Grace, friends, is not something we add to our works. Grace is shockingly undeserving. Grace is overwhelmingly unexpected. The grace of God reaches us when we are deeply drenched in our depravity and it sustains us in spite of our own tendencies to drift and rebel against God. It is God's grace alone that saves us. It is God's grace alone that quickens our hearts dead in their trespasses and sins. It is God's grace alone that motivates us to grow in Christ. It is God's grace alone that will lead us back to God in the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the reformers called sola gratia, grace alone. So as we turn to our text today, I want you to especially notice the all-encompassing power of grace. Grace saves but grace trains. And grace also gives us hope for the future. Christianity is not well defined by the unbiblical jargon, do your best and let God do the rest. The grace of God initiates our faith and it also motivates our good works. Grace nullifies all pride and gives glory to Christ, who is, listen to this, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Sola Gratia proclaims that everything and anything that is good and redeemable within us is a result of God's grace alone, the grace that God alone imparts. So let's turn now to our text and consider God's grace and his grace in salvation. For the grace of God has appeared. Notice that grace in this text is personified. It appears. And what causes it to appear? The text doesn't say. It simply appears. And that's at the heart of grace, right? Because if anything motivated that grace to appear, it wouldn't be grace. It would be works. It would be deserved. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. Grace, by definition, does not initiate within us. Nothing. It is simply the free gift of God to us. Really, grace came to us in the first appearing, in the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in their redemptive plan brought salvation to us. When did God decide to do that? In eternity past. His grace is motivated by His character. His grace is motivated by His goodness. And it is accomplished through the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In a special way, grace appeared to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. John 1, 17. For the law was given through Moses. 
But, this is a contrasting statement, right? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's grace has been present among humans from the very beginning. The mere fact that we were created is grace. The mere fact that we have the breath of life, that's grace. The mere fact that we are made in the image of God, that is grace. The mere fact that even when God judged all humanity, he spared one family, Noah, that's grace. God's grace is seen everywhere in creation. But there was something particularly special about grace that was revealed to all people when Jesus came to earth. And what is that? Salvation. Salvation was promised. But when Jesus comes, he accomplishes it. It is no longer salvation by credit. No. Salvation now is by debt. The debt that was paid, fully paid for us on the cross. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Grace brings salvation. Salvation from what? Why do we need to be saved? Salvation from God. From God himself. This is one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Bible. Satan is under condemnation. He is not the one that is going to exercise wrath over humanity. It is God himself who will. Salvation from God, from his righteous wrath that should be poured on all of us. Because we all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. I wonder if you realize that God saves us from God. God saves us from himself. Friends, our greatest problem is not Satan. It is not the world. Our greatest problem are not others who oppose us. Our greatest problem is that God in his justice stands against all ungodliness as a warrior wielding a flaming sword. And that sword stands against us. We are the ungodly. We are the ones who bring offense to God's holiness. And there are therefore under his wrath. But listen to the words of hope. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, unable to save ourselves, unable to defend ourselves from all-powerful, almighty God, while we were still weak, enemies of God. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is us. You could substitute this here if you're trusting in Christ. At the right time, Christ died for Lucas. Christ died for me at the right time, sparing me the right judgment of God. Friends, this is salvation accomplished, the death of Christ, the sinless God-man for those who should have died for their sins. This is at the heart of grace alone, sola gratia, the grace of God in the death of Christ. 
God judges in his righteousness, and we should say, praise the Lord. Right? Have you read Revelation? Right? But God also saves in his mercy. And who is the object of his grace? All people. Literally all humanity. Salvation has been made available to everyone without distinction. Right? In the old covenant, salvation is of the Jews. Right? But when Jesus appears, salvation has been made available to all who will come to him in faith. Anyone who draws near to God in faith and repentance will be saved. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's assurance that salvation, right, does what it's set to accomplish. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friends, I wonder if you're feeling the weight of your sin today. I wonder if today you sense that God is not for you, but against you. Grace alone is crying to you, come to Christ and receive his salvation. I wonder if you sense that your ungodliness is beyond redemption. In the words of Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs, hear this, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. When those who crucified Jesus heard the proclamation of the gospel, just a few days later by Peter, and they say, Brothers, what must we do? We have crucified the Son of God. Peter does not say you're beyond salvation. Peter does not say you're beyond redemption. He says, repent. Repent and be baptized. And you receive the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the call. The mercy of God abounds over us. And it overwhelms our sins. Grace is an invitation to the vilest sinner to be forgiven. Grace does not forgive those who sin less than others. Grace forgives those who trust in the sinless Son of God. God forgives those who trust in Him for His grace alone. This invitation is to you today. This invitation is for you to trust in God, in His grace. But grace not only saves, grace also trains. God doesn't work only in the beginning of our salvation. He's actively involved with our salvation from beginning to end. He began a good work in us, and He will bring it to completion. We do not become spiritual orphans once we become saved. We are saved by faith. And we pursue sanctification by faith. We're saved by faith and we persevere by faith. It's interesting that the word for training here in our text, paideusa, means instructing as one instructs a child. This is exactly what is happening spiritually with us today. We're saved by grace. We become children of God. And by grace, God then instructs us on how to live as children of God. 
God's adoption of us is complete. It comes with redemption and with instruction. Just as God's grace accomplishes salvation for us, it also accomplishes our sanctification. Just as sure as our salvation is, so is our sanctification. Why? Because God saves and because God sanctifies. Just yesterday, I was teaching my son to fly a kite. I can't honestly tell you who was having more fun with that. It was him or I. I can tell you that at a point, he went back inside the house and I stayed outside with the kite. But we both enjoy it, I think. I think he wanted me to let him fly the kite and I was instructing him by flying the kite for him. There was so much there for him to learn. Every time I handed him the kite, the kite would drop. Would drop. Every time I tried to let him fly the kite first and put it in the air, he wasn't able to. Direction of the wind, keeping tension on the string, avoiding trees. You see, I grew up in Brazil. I know all of these things. Flying kite is a favorite pastime for kids in Brazil. Alone, he would never be able to put the kite in the air. But as I worked with him, he began to learn. And he was able to sustain the kite in the air for quite some time. And, and, and that's how God works with us. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to pursue sanctification. We don't know how to be holy. But God is in it with us through the ministry of his spirit. God is in it with us as we hear the word proclaimed to us. God is in it with us as we fellowship with one another. And we're reminded of the grace of God, of the gospel that works in us day in and day out. And the goal is that our faith would be so strong that we would be able, right, to pursue the sanctification in grace, in a beautiful way, in a great way, in a way that the world might look at us and say, wow, I desire that. Because, friends, holiness is attractive. Friends, Christ-likeness is attractive. The world rejects it because of the hardness of their hearts. But, friends, our greatest testimony of the grace of God is that we are both saved by Him and we're transformed by Him. One of the most important steps towards maturity is when a Christian understands that the gospel is not just for salvation, but the gospel is for the whole of the Christian life. Galatians 2.21, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, today, right now. I live not by works, by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 2.12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to, work, to will and to work at a desire level. We work because God changes our hearts for his good pleasure. Colossians 1, 29, 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, not mine, his energy, 
that he powerfully works within me. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's sanctification. Okay? Laying aside of sins, running with endurance, that's sanctification. How do we do that? Look into Jesus. Our eyes are on Jesus. Our eyes are not on self. Are my abilities strong enough? A am I spiritually strong enough? No. It is Christ. Has he died for me? That's the object of our endurance. That's the object of Christian sanctification. Look to Christ. Why? Because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Grace instructs us, but how does grace instruct us? Just like we saw last week with Scripture, which has a positive and a negative aspect to its profitability, grace instructs us both correctively and instructionally unto Christ-likeness. In the way of correction, we are corrected so we may renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, God's grace reveals to us those aspects of our lives that do not reflect the character of God. That's ungodliness. But also, grace reveals to, uh, to us those aspects of our lives that reflect the world. That is worldly passions. Colossians 3, 5 through 8, Paul actually takes this concept of worldliness and worldly passions, those things that may live in us today that do not resemble God, and he lists them in front of us. I think... I think the categories here are categories of sexual sin, anger, and sins of the tongue, okay? And, and it is so helpful because Paul is saying here in this passage, these are things that you must put to death. These are things that must be dead in you because you died to yourself, to your flesh, so what are some of these things that Paul puts in front of us in Colossians 3, 5 through 8? Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. I think to different degrees, this list indicts all of us, doesn't it? I think there is there's something for us all to look at in this list and say, Lord, help. Lord, help me. Can I encourage you to do something? If you're a partaker of the grace of God, can I encourage you to take this list home tonight and circle the practices in this list that you must put to death? And, and I want to ask you to commit yourselves to prayer so that you may experience the grace of God empowering you to live a holy life. And if you are especially entrapped 
in one of these areas right now because the grace of God enables us to live holy lives in this present age, can I encourage you to call your deacon or call a mature believer, brother or sister in the life of the church. One that would take this and say, I will help you. Would you tell them, please help me? Please help me. It is more important to live a holy life than to hide in sin. Friends, the grace of God thrives in an environment of honesty, vulnerability, accountability, where we are constantly confessing our sins to God and to one another and allowing the light of God to shine into our darkness. But the grace of God also instructs. And by instructing, it teaches us how to embrace self-control, uprightness, and godly living. Grace trains us to live lives that reflect Christ. And when does it do that? It does that today, in this present age. We're not to look at ourselves and say, when Christ returns, I'll conquer this. In this present age, God does not leave for tomorrow what must be accomplished today. We often think of grace as a soft prompting of God. The word sounds like that, doesn't it? Grace. That gently waits for our initiative in order to work. Friend, let the word of God shatter this misconception from your mind. The grace of God does not wait for our cooperation. God will put us through the ringer if he finds it necessary in order to cause us to grow into Christ's likeness. And that's grace. If grace waits, it is not grace. It is work. But if grace works, then that's grace. God will strip us of every confidence that we have in self and will only leave us with enough room for confidence in Him in order to instruct us in grace. 2 Timothy 2, 1, You then, my child, be strengthened. That's what grace does. It gives us power, strength. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, grace is not soft. Grace is powerful. It gives strength, and it often does so through hardship. And if you are a Christian, you have to know that you have signed your rights over to God. And He will work out His grace in your life over your comforts. He will work out His grace in your life over your dreams. He will work out your gra His grace in your life over your desires. But it is necessary that we should experience the grace of God in sanctification. Because the evidence that we have experienced, the salvation that grace brings, is the fact that grace is at work right now. And we're experiencing its training power. When I think of grace, I often think of 
Joseph's story in Genesis 37 through 50. Maybe you don't think of grace when you think of that story. Joseph grew up in a household filled with favoritism, dysfunctional, and contentious. He was sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused of sexual abuse, put in prison, forgotten in prison for 15 years. Grace? Where is grace? Oh, sure, Pastor Lucas, at the end he realizes that God is working all things out. But was grace with Joseph in the midst of his hardship? Genesis 39 is the peak of Joseph's suffering. He is betrayed. He's put in prison. He's forgotten there. But as I read that chapter, every time I go through the book of Genesis, I'm, I'm not surprised with the injustices he suffered. No, suffering injustice is common to men. Do you know what shocks me in that chapter, Genesis 39? Throughout Joseph's suffering and oppression, we're told five times in that chapter alone that the Lord was with him. He was in jail. He was in prison. Friends, it is better to be in prison suffering, but with the Lord, than to experience the freedom of the world and not be with God. God's grace follows us into hardship. Not only that, but three times in that chapter alone, we hear that God blessed Joseph. That's grace. Friends, this is the grace of God. God is orchestrating our lives so that we can say with Joseph, what you, the world, meant for evil, God meant. Not allowed, not used, same word, God meant for good. God is not interested in our present comfort. No, he's interested that his grace accomplishes his purposes in our life. God's training is often grueling, demanding, exhausting, but the outcome is always glorious. So friend, are you going through hardship? Is your, does your life feel like Joseph's life? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him, God means for you to go through that so that so that you may grow in Christ's likeness and so that you may experience the holiness without which you will not see God. You see, it's better to suffer today and become holier and learn the holiness of God than not to suffer and never experience the empowering, the empowering nature of grace. The outcome of God's training, of God's grace that trains us, is life, life eternal, life eternal with him. Finally, let us turn 
Let us turn to hope. The grace of God gives hope. In Brazil, we say that hope is the last one to die. Well, there is hope. There is life. Hope is a great Christian virtue. Faith, love, and hope create a trifecta of virtues that must characterize the Christian life. Notice in our text that Christians hope for a blessing that is yet to come. What is that? The second appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in between two appearings, okay? That's the age that we live in today. Jesus appeared, and he will appear. That's it. That's our history. Christians hope for this blessing to come. Christ appears once, and grace came. Christ will appear again, and grace will carry us there. One of the most powerful aspects of grace is that it, it causes us to look beyond ourselves, beyond our circumstances. It causes us to look forward. It causes us to look at the promises we have been given and that will be fulfilled. Friends, we, can, we can't live well in a world of suffering if Christ's return is not on the forefront of our minds. As Christians, we must recite the words, Oh, that ye would be today, every day. The, the, the imminent return of Christ helps us live in hope. 1 Peter 1, 13. Notice how grace works with the second coming. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We hope a coming grace. We hope a future grace. This is a call to wait. The call of the Christian life is a call to wait. My wife often says that Christians must learn to be comfortable with waiting because that's so much of the Christian experience. We often associate waiting, however, with idleness, but this is not the Christian call to wait. We wait in the powerful grace of God. As we wait for Christ in His grace, we actively wait as we become more like Christ through the training of His grace. Our greatest motivation to live for Christ today is the hope and certainty that Christ is coming for us tomorrow. But Pastor Lucas, how can you be so sure of the future promise God has made? How can you be so sure that God's promises will truly come to fruition how can you know that your future is assured with God? Friends, God's future promises for His people are all rooted in the finished, complete, all-encompassing work of Christ on the cross. 
Look at our last verse for today. Who, Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us, to buy us out of our slavery, to buy us out of sinfulness, to buy us out of ungodliness, who redeemed us from all lawlessness. How can we overcome sin? Well, Christ has already bought us from sin. We must believe. We must have faith. And what's the purpose of this buying? The purpose is to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Some of your translations may say a peculiar people. What does that mean? A unique people. The work of redemption of Christ is a work for the church. Christ died for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's sacrifice has a specific object. And that's the church. That's this peculiar, that is this particular people. Friends, God didn't throw out his salvation out there and said, let's see where he lands. As Christ died, he was dying for you and for me. That is his love for us. His love that initiates in us a love for him. Why do we love him? Because he first loved. That's the people that he is making for himself. And what is the characteristic of this people? Because we have been redeemed from all, unlaw from all lawlessness, because we have been purified by the blood of Christ, because we belong to God, we are then zealous for good works. Do you see in our whole passage about grace where good works come? At the very end, because of all that Christ has done for us, we are a people who has zeal for good works. Friends, your hope of eternal life must not rest on how good you are. Your hope for eternal life must not rest on how much money you give away, how much time you volunteer, how much church you attend, how many verses of the, or many chapters of the Bible you read a day. Your assurance of salvation must not rest on the fact that you are the son of a minister or the daughter of a minister. Your assurance of salvation must not have anything to do with what you do, but with the fact that Christ has died and he offers to you today redemption. And if you believe this redemption, if you accept, if you recognize I am a lawless person, deserving of the wrath of God, fully deserving of eternal punishment in hell, but I believe in the sinless Son of God, God will grant to you that which was never yours, His righteousness. You will be found faultless, spotless, 
because you believed in the spotless Son of God. At this point, you say, Lord, I want to live for you. Friends, this is the message of hope. This is the message that transforms us. It transforms the direction of what we do from good works for self to good works for God, for His glory. The, the root of both aspects of grace, its saving nature and its training nature, rests on the fact that Jesus died for His people to justify them and to sanctify them. Therefore, all glory be to Christ. If we have been saved by Christ, we will live holy lives for His glory at this present age. Let this truth shape your heart so that you may live for Him from this day forward. Would you pray with me? Father, we are such weak people. We cannot set ourselves free from the bondage of sin that we were born into. But Father, your grace has appeared and is brought to us through faith in Jesus Christ's salvation. And it has also brought to us training where we're learning day by day to walk in holiness and Christ-likeness. Father, I pray for Central Baptist Church. Lord, may we be a holy people. May we experience the power of grace. May we know that we fall short. But Jesus, while we were yet sinners, died for us. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Thank you.